Hi, everybody. Carla here. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions or comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. And now, without further delay, I give you Ernest J. Gaines, A Gathering of Old Men. This is segment five. It's called Grant Bellow, a.k.a. Cherry. Yank was waiting for us behind a bush on the riverbank side of the road. Clatu didn't have to stop, just slow down and old Yank hopped in the back of the truck. Yank was in his early 70s, but he still thought he was a cowboy. He used to break horses and mules 30, 40 years ago, and he still wore the same kind of clothes he wore back then. His straw hat was draped like a cowboy hat, wore a faded red polka-dotted handkerchief, tied in a loose knot round his neck. His pants legs were stuck down in his rubber boots, not cowboy boots. Back, shoulders had been broke, oh, I don't know how many times, made him walk leaning forward. Hands had been broke and rebroke. Now he couldn't shut them too tight or open them or open them too wide, but he still thought he was a cowboy. He spoke when he first got in the truck, but after that, we didn't do too much talking. We was just feeling proud. I could see it on Yank's face, and I could feel it sitting next to Chimley and Matt, proud as we could be. A mile or so after we picked up Yank, we picked up Dirty Red at Talbot. Clatu had to blow the horn twice before we saw Dirty Red shuffling from behind the house. He carried the old shotgun by the barrel, the stock almost touching the ground. He had a self-rode cigarette hanging from the corner of his mouth. He had as much ashes hanging on the cigarette as the cigarette was long. Dirty Red wouldn't take time to knock the ashes off a cigarette. Ashes fell off when it couldn't hang on any longer. Dirty Red got in the truck and spoke to everybody. Ho, oh, he said. We greeted him back. He looked at Chimley. What's happening there, Chimley? Chimley nodded. Dirty Red grinned at him. Three or four miles after we picked up Dirty Red, Clatu turned off the main highway down a dirt road that separated Morgan and Marshall plantations. There was cane on both sides, Morgan on one side, Marshall on the other. The cane was so tall, the blade hung over the ditches and over the road. After going a little way so the people on the highway couldn't see us, Clatu stopped the truck and told us to get out. He had to go farther up the highway for another load. He told us to wait for them at the graveyard, and we would all walk up to Matthew's house together. He thought that would look better than if we straggled in one or two at a time. He turned the truck around and headed back to the highway, and we started walking. Jacob and Matt was in front, Chimley right behind them. Jacob had his gun over his shoulder, carrying it like a soldier. Matt had his tucked under his arm, barrel pointed toward the ground, like a hunter. Chimley had his under his arm, too, but he didn't walk nearly as straight as Matt or Jacob, just shuffled along, head down, like he was following their tracks in the dust. If they had to make a quick stop, Chimley would have butt into them, I'm sure. Me and Yank followed Chimley with Dirty Red and Billy Washington behind us. Billy carried his gun over his shoulder, but carried it too loosely, more like he was carrying a stick of wood than a gun. Billy couldn't hit the broad side of a barn if he stood two feet in front of it. Next to him, Dirty Red was nearly dragging his gun in the dust. I don't know who looked worse, Dirty Red, Billy Washington, or Chimley. Neither of them 
looked like he was ready for battle, that's for sure. We still had Kang, tall and blue-green on both sides of the road, Morgan on the left, Marshall on the right. But it wasn't Marshall Kane anymore. Bo Bhutan was leasing the plantation from the Marshall family. Bo and his family had been leasing all the land the past 25, 30 years. The very same land we had worked, our people had worked, our people's people had worked since the time of slavery. Now, Mr. Bo had it all. Or I should say, had it all up to about 12 o'clock that day. After about half a mile, we turned right on another headland. You had cane here too, but just on one side. On the left, the cane had been cut and hauled away, and you could see all the way back to the swamps. It made me feel lonely. In my old age, especially in grinding, when I saw an empty cane field, it always made me feel lonely. The rows looked so naked and gray and lonely, like an old house where the people have moved from, where good friends have moved from, leaving the house empty and bare with nothing but ghosts now to keep it company. I was still looking across the field when I heard the shot. I turned just in time to see a little rabbit bobbing across the empty rows. By the time I took aim, he was already down one of the middles, and all I could see was his little ears bobbing every now and then. I looked back at Billy and Dirty Red. Billy was just bringing the gun down from his shoulder. Me and Yank waited for him and Dirty Red to catch up. Missed him, huh, Billy? I asked. Billy didn't answer. He wouldn't even look at me or Yank. He was too shamed. I hope he don't miss Fix like that. Dirty Red teased Billy. Dirty Red had a cigarette hanging from the corner of his mouth, and he held his head a little to the side to keep the smoke out his eyes. Rabbit was so close, I started to hit him with the head with the head. I started to hit him in the head with the butt of my gun, but I wanted Billy to have him. He was moving, Billy said. He said it quietly. He wouldn't look at us. After you stumbled over him, he started moving. Dirty Red teased Billy. Billy kept his head down. You'll get another chance, Billy. You just wait, I told him. We started walking again, me and Yank in front, and Billy and Dirty Red following us. Matt, Jacob, and Chimley had stopped for a second and started walking again. Behind us, I could hear Dirty Red laughing. He would be quiet a second, then laugh again. I knowed he was still laughing at Billy. I hoped Billy missing that rabbit wasn't a bad sign for the rest of that day. Now, up ahead, I could see the pecan and oak trees in the graveyard at Marshall. You had a dozen trees spread out over the graveyard and about the same number of headstones, maybe two or three more. But 25, 30 years ago, you didn't have more than two or three headstones in there all total. Back there, when I was growing up, people didn't even mark the graves. Each family had a little plot, and everybody knowed where that little plot was. If it was a big family, then they had to have a little bit more, sometimes from the plot of a smaller family, but who cared? They all come from the same place. They had mixed together when they was alive, so what's the difference if they mix together now? That old graveyard had been the burial ground for black folks ever since the time of slavery. I was 74, and I had grandparents in there. We squatted under a pecan tree just outside the graveyard fence. You had pecans on the ground all around you, and if you looked up, you could see them hanging loose in the shells. The next good wind or rain was going to bring them all down. It was a good year for pecans. 
We hadn't seen them. We hadn't been there more than 10, maybe 15 minutes when Jacob stood up and went inside the graveyard. I looked back over my shoulder and I seen him pulling up weeds from Tessie's grave. Tessie was his sister. She was one of them great big pretty mulatto gals who messed around with the white men and the black man. The white men wanted her all for themselves, and they told her to stay away from the niggers. But she didn't listen, and they killed her. Ran her through the quarters out into that St. Charles River, Mardi Gras Day, 1947. But listen to this now. Her own people at the old mulatto place wouldn't even take her body home. They was against her living here in the first place round the darker people. I'm not dark myself. I'm light as them, but I'm not French, not quality. Them, they're quality them, but they wouldn't even take her body home. Buried her with the kind she had lived with. Maybe that's why Jacob was here today, to make up what he had done to his sister over 30 years ago. After pulling up the weeds, he knelt down at the head of the grave and made the sign of the cross. Next thing you know, every last one of us was in there visiting our people's graves. You had to walk in grass knee-high to reach some of the graves. The people usually cleaned up the graveyard if they had to bury somebody, or for La Toussaint, but nobody had been buried there in a good while, and La Toussaint wasn't for another month. So you had grass, weeds everywhere. Pecans and acorns, you could feel them under your feet. You could hear them crack when you stepped on them. We went to our different little family plots, but we wasn't too sure about all the graves. If they had been put there the last 20, 25 years, yes, then we could tell for sure. But say if they had been put there 40, 50 years ago, it was no way we could tell if we was looking at the right grave for that right person. Most of the graves after a while had just shifted and mixed with all the others. Dirty Red was a little bit farther away from the rest of us, more over into the corner. We had never mixed too well with his people. We thought they was too trifling, never doing anything for themselves. Dirty Red was the last one. Maybe that's why he was here today, to do something for all the others. But maybe that's why we were all there, to do something for the others. After I had knelt down and prayed over my own family plot, I wandered over to where Dirty Red was standing all by himself. He was eating a pecan and looking down at the weeds that covered the graves. Dirty Red hadn't knelt down or pulled one weed from one grave. Some of the graves was all sunk in. My brother Gabe there, Dirty Red said. I didn't know for sure what spot he was looking at because soon as he said it, he cracked another pecan with his teeth. Not cracking a couple of them together in his hand, but cracking them one at a time with his teeth. My mon, Jude, my pa, Francois, right there. He said, I still didn't know for sure where he was looking. Uncle Ned, right in there. Somewhere, he said. The whole place was all sunk in, and you had weeds everywhere, so I couldn't tell for sure where Dirty Red was looking. I never looked at his eyes to see if they shifted from one spot to another, but knowing Dirty Red, I figured they probably didn't. That would have been too much like work. Even to bat his eyes was too much work for Dirty Red. You got plenty of us in here, I said, looking around the graveyard. I could see Matt, Chimley, Yank, all of them standing near their people's graves. This where you want them to bring you to? I asked Dirty Red. Might as well, if it's still here, he said. They getting rid of these old graveyards more and more, I said. These white folks coming up today don't have no respect for the dead. 
Dirty Red cracked another pecan with his teeth. Graveyard pecan always tastes good, he said. You tried any of them? I'll gather me up a few before we leave, I said. I looked out on the empty field on the other side of the fence. The cane rose came up to 20 or 30 feet of the graveyard. Bo had cut and hauled the cane away, and I could see all the way back to the swamps. Them long, old, lonely cane rows took me back, back, I can tell you that. Him and Charlie had a chance to get some of it done, I said to Dirty Red. He sure won't be getting no more done, Dirty Red said. What you think of all this, Dirty Red? I asked him. Well, I look at it this way, he said. How many more years I got here on this old earth? That was all he had to say. He stopped right there, just like Dirty Red not to finish something. That would have taken too much of his strength, and him and his people believed in saving as much strength as they could. With that little time left, you thought you ought to do something worthwhile with your life? I asked, trying to coax him on. Something like that, he said. He ate another pecan. Your people will be proud of you, Dirty Red. I reckon a lot of them in here going to be proud after this day is over, he said. Might have some of us joining them, too. You think it might come to that? That's up to fix, he said. He looked at me and grinned. Then he looked past me and nodded. Here come Klaatu and them. They came down the road where the old railroad tracks used to be. Klaatu was in front with his gun in one hand and a shoebox under his left arm. Bing and Dean Lejeune from the two Indian bayou was a step behind him. Both had on khakis and both had on straw hats, and you had to get right on them to tell who was who. And if you didn't know Dean had the scar across the left side of his face, you still couldn't tell which one you was talking to. Clabber Hornsby, the albino from Jero, came behind Bing and Ding Lejeune, walking by himself. Clabber's head and face from this distance was all one color, white, white. What he had a gun for, only God knows. He couldn't stop blinking long enough to sight, let alone kill somebody. Behind Clabber came Jean-Pierre Record and Gable Rond. Now, that was somebody, Gable, I never would have expected to see. He very seldom even left home. To church, maybe, but that was about all. Behind him and Jean-Pierre came Cedric Tucker and Sidney Brooks. Cedric's brother Silas was was the last black sharecropper on the place. He was buried here. Walking next to Cedric was Sidney Brooks. We all called him Coot. Old Coot was in his World War I uniform, even had on the cap and the belt across his shoulder. He carried his gun across the other shoulder in a soldier's manner. We left the graveyard to meet them. We met under the pecan tree, and a couple of the fellows squatted down against the wire fence. Everybody shot? Klaatu asked soon as he walked up. Billy shot at a rabbit on his foot and missed him, Dirty Red said. Dirty Red was squatting by the fence. Couple of the fellows laughed at Dirty Red. That rabbit was moving, Dirty Red, Billy told him. But you ain't and don't forget it. The men laughed again, not loud, quiet, thoughtful, more from nervousness than anything else. Save your fighting for later, Klaatu told Billy Washington. Them ain't shot. Shoot, he said. She told us to bring empty shells. What are we supposed to do with them empties? Throw them at fix? I asked Klaatu. You can ask her that when you get there, Klaatu said. 
Them ain't shot yet. Shoot up in them trees. Let them down there hear you. Five or six of us raised our guns and shot. A few pecans, a few acorns, some moss and leaves fell down on the sunk-in graves under the trees. Anybody got anything to say for we get started? Klaatu asked. Anybody feel like turning around? It can get a, it can get a little hot out here today. Anybody? Nobody said they wanted to turn around. All right, Klaatu said. Let's get moving. Heads up and back straight. We going in like soldiers, not tramps, all right? He started out first, gun in one hand, shoebox under his arm. Matt and Jacob followed, then the rest of us. Jean-Pierre, Billy Washington, and Chimley was doing all they could to walk with their heads up and backs straight. That brings us to the end of segment five of Ernest J. Gaines, A Gathering of Old Men. Thanks so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. Let's continue with Ernest J. Gaines, A Gathering of Old Men. This is segment six, and it's called Cyril Robillard, a.k.a. Klaatu. Candy met us at the gate where the gate used to be. You didn't have a fence or gate there now. She stood on one side of the ditch. We was on the other side. She was a little spare woman, not too tall, always wearing pants and shirts, never dresses. She thanked us for coming. You could tell by her face how happy she was to see us, thanking this one, thanking that one, thanking the other one. She knowed most of us by name because we all lived in the same parish and she had traveled all over the parish all her life. After everybody had spoke to her, she looked back at me. She knowed about me and my gardening and she figured I had brought the people there in my truck. Now she started telling me what had happened. I listened good, but I could see from the start she was lying. For one thing, I know that Matt I knowed what Matthew meant to that family, especially to her. Besides that, she was trying too hard to make me believe her, like most of these white folks you find round here. When they trying to convince you, they'll look you dead in the eye, daring you to think otherwise from what they want you to think. Adding to all that, she told it too fast, too pat. She had practiced it too much. After listening to her, I looked at Matthew squatting against the wall with the gun in his arms. He wasn't looking at us. He was looking over us toward the trees on the other side of the road. He acted like he didn't care if we was even there. Matthew was one of them blue-black signalese niggers, always bragged about not having no white blood in his veins. He looked down on all the rest of us who had some, and the more you had, the more he looked down on you. I was brown-skinned, my grandpa white, my grandma Indian and black, and both my parents black, so he didn't look down on me quite as much as he did some of the others, like Jacob or Cherry or the Lejeune brothers. With Clabber and Rooster, he just shook his head. Rooster was yellow, with nappy black hair. Clabber was milk white, with nappy white hair. Matthew just shook his head when he saw either one of them.
We moved in the yard and made a circle round Bo lying there in the grass. His mouth and eyes still opened, his face caked with dust, his brown hair full of grass seeds. The shotgun pellets had hit him on the left side of his chest, tearing off that part of his shirt. Flies covered the dried blood. After looking at him, I went over and shook hands with Ruth Seabury, Johnny Paul, and Rooster Jackson standing by the garden fence. We didn't have much to say, just a nod, but in that nod, I could see how proud they was to be there. Glow Herbert, Hazel Robinson, and Rooster's big wife, Beulah Jackson, was all sitting on the steps. Glow had her three little grandchildren next to her side. I went to shake hands, but I had to pass by Reverend Jameson first. He was the preacher in the quarters, and he was the only man there who didn't have a gun, and the only person there who looked like he hated the sight of us. When I shook Glow's hand, she held on to mine a while. I knowed why she did it. Two reasons. One, she was worried about what might happen if Fix came there. But two, she was proud of us being there now. I shook hands with Hazel and Beulah, and I spoke to Corinne, sitting in the rocking chair on the Gary, sitting there straight and lifeless like a scarecrow. She didn't speak or nod, just gazed out there in the yard at nobody, at nothing. I went to the end of the Gary and spoke to Matthew. You all right? I asked him. I'm all right, he said, not looking at me. I went around the house and hid the shoebox behind the second block under the house. When I came back, I raised up two fingers to Matt Brown, and he nodded back. I sat at the end of the gary and looked at Matthew. The rest of the men had moved to different parts of the yard. Some were standing over by the garden talking. Some were standing next to the end of the gary. Dirty red and a couple more squatted on the walk. Candy had come back in the yard, and she was standing next to the steps where Glow sat with her grandchildren. And standing away from everybody else, all to himself, was that preacher Jameson. He looked from one of us to another, from one to another. He wanted to say something, but he couldn't know where to start. He didn't know where to start. Well, I said to Matthew, she called y'all. I didn't. He didn't look at me. He was looking toward the tractor out there in the road. The motor was still running, but he wasn't paying it any attention. He was looking over the tractor, over the trailers of cane, toward the trees in that far pasture. When the men, when the man get here, I'll turn myself in, he said. You mean I'm going to turn myself in, don't you? Johnny Paul said from over by the garden. Johnny Paul had his shotgun tucked under his arm, the barrel flat against his leg. You ain't taking no credit for what I did. You gonna have to come after me, Ruth said. He was standing next to Johnny Paul by the garden. Y'all better fit me in there somewhere, Matt said, across the yard from them. How could you shoot him? You don't even stay here, Johnny Paul said. Chicken hawk. Matt said. He looked up at the sky. The sky was clear blue, not a cloud anywhere, but still a little too warm for October. Can't keep that bugger from eating my chickens for nothing in the world. Told Chimley this morning I was going to take my shotgun and go looking for that rascal. Followed him all the way from Medlow to Marshall. Never could get a clean shot at that bugger. He was still looking up at the sky like he thought the chicken hawk might fly over his head. He sure told me that. 
Chimley said. He looked up the he looked up at the sky too. He even stepped back and looked up into that pecan tree behind Matthew's house. That's how I happened to get my gun and went out looking for that old chicken hawk too. I didn't see neither one of y'all, Bing Lejeune said. Him and his brother Dean were standing on the other side of the walk from Chimley. I've been here talking to Matthew all morning long and I didn't I didn't even see you, Ding said. But you see this, don't you? Bing said, raising his fist playfully. You see this one? Ding said, raising his fist. Don't make me mad now. You know me when I get mad. Sure, sure, Bing said. But you can't hit the broad side of a barn with a cannon. Everybody on the bayou know that. The rest of the people said pretty much the same. One claimed he did it, then another one, another, and then another one. Clabber, Jean-Pierre, Billy, Rooster, Coot, one after the other. Dirty Red, squatting on the, on the walk, took the cigarette from his mouth and blowed off the ashes. No, he didn't do it right away. He waited for it to fall off. When it didn't, he blowed it off. He frowned at the ashes before he did it. Then he looked up. You boys ain't gonna take this from me now, is you? He asked the rest of us. Look like you gonna have to get in line to shoot both, Dirty Red, Cherry Bellow told him. Dirty Red looked at his cigarette and tapped it lightly before he put it back in his mouth. Maybe me and old Hannah might have to do some more shooting, eliminate some of the competition, he said. What'd you say about that, old gal? He said to his shotgun. Ready to eliminate some of the competition? While all of this was going on, I could see Jameson getting madder and madder. Jameson was a short, jet-black, ball-headed little fellow with a white mustache and beard. That bald head was shining in that hot sun like a looking glass. Y'all will sing a different tune before this day is over with, he said. Just mark my word. I've already told you to go home, Reverend Jameson. Candy said from the other side of the steps. I've been telling you for the last hour. You don't want to be here. Go on home. I don't want to have to tell you any more. This is my place, Candy, Jameson said. I ain't got no home if they burn this place down. He turned to the rest of us, beads of sweat just popping out of his head and running down his face. Can't y'all understand what I'm trying to say to y'all? He asked us. Nobody answered him. He looked from one to another, from one to another, but nobody answered him. Most of the people wouldn't even look back at him. He came closer to the Gary. Matthew, for God's sake, go turn yourself in, he pleaded with Matthew. Please, Matthew. Matthew looked over Jameson's head toward the trees in that far pasture. He didn't answer. Jameson came round the end of the Gary where I was sitting. He was crying now. He was pressing his lips tight, but I could see the tears running down his face. Clatu, he said. You got sense. Talk to him. Tell him what can happen. I didn't answer him. I didn't want to look at him. I looked at the tractor out there in the road, the motor still running. Clatu, please, Jameson said. Please. I come here to stand, not to talk, I said, not looking at him. But he kept on looking at me just standing there crying, his mouth pressed tight, looking at me. That's what y'all come here for? He asked. To die? Y'all think that'll make up for the hurt? That's what y'all think? I didn't answer him. I didn't look at him. I could see him from the corner of my eyes, his mouth pressed tight again. 
Now he looked at Candy. You satisfied now? He asked her. You satisfied now? You think you're going to do him any good if you soak this land with blood? She didn't answer him either. He kept on looking at her. I could see, I could see it out of the corner of my eyes, but she wasn't paying him any more attention than anybody else did. He turned back on the rest of the people. Go home, old fools, he said. Old fools, go home. But nobody paid him any mind. For the next few seconds, everything was quiet except for that tractor out there in the road. Somewhere in the swamps, an owl called. But after that, nothing. Then a pecan dropped from that tree in the backyard, fell on the tin roof, and tumbled to the ground. We all looked at it there a second, then Snookum went to pick it up. Dirty Red, squatting on the walk, gave the little boy a handful of pecans from his pocket. The boy went back to the steps and gave one of the pecans to the two other children. They started eating. Well, Candy, I said, looking at her by the steps. She turned to look at me. What now? I said. Did everybody shoot? She asked. We shot. We kept the empty shells. All number fives? Number fives, I said. You know why, don't you, Klaatu? I nodded my head. She looked at me a while, then she glanced at Matthew and faced the road again. You'd do anything in the world for him, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I thought to myself. Jameson had been watching her, too, and now he saw another chance to break in. And what's that supposed to do, fool mates? He asked her. When she didn't answer him, he turned to me. Y'all think mates that crazy? The man on his back right here... In Matthew's yard, the tractor out there still running right in front of Matthew's house. Some of y'all live far as Silo, the old mulatto place, Bayonne, 10, 12 miles from here. Don't y'all know Mapes gonna know half of y'all couldn't be nowhere near this place when this happened? Y'all all gone plumb crazy? Reverend Jameson, just shut up, Eula said. Just shut up. Nobody listening to you, so just shut up. Go on back home like Candy said. Nobody listening to you today. Maybe I ought to shoot him, Rooster said. You think I ought to shoot him, Dirty Red? No, let him slide, Dirty Red said. He might change for the shooting start. A couple of the men laughed at Rooster and Dirty Red. It was quiet for a while. Then we saw the dust. We couldn't see the car, just the dust coming down the quarters, high over the weeds. We all thought it was mapes till the car pulled up and stopped. Through the naked bean poles in Matthew's garden, through the weeds and bushes on the ditch bank, I could make out that little blue sports car that Candy's boyfriend owned. She went out in the road to meet him. The rest of us settled back again. That'll do it for segment six of Ernest Gaines, A Gathering of Old Men. Thanks for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.